everybody. My name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors on staff here and on our teaching team. Thanks for stepping into our winter weekend with us and kind of experiencing part of it. It was really cool. We had like five or six, I think six churches, 300 people all together here worshiping this whole weekend. You saw the video. It was hype. If it makes anyone in the room, if it stirs in your heart, like, man, I would love to volunteer with those junior high or high school students. Well, just shameless plug that right there. Maybe that's you know, maybe you just need to jump into that. Uh, but in my time today, I get to tag team with Rusty, so my time is cut short, so I'm just going to dive straight in this morning. I have two modern-day cuss words I want to talk about today. They're not real cuss words, but they're, they're words that our society hates or that our society kind of bucks back against. And the first, uh, the first one is discipline. Now, this, this winter weekend, we've been focusing on the spiritual disciplines, which are things that we can do draw us closer to God, things like uh, prayer and scripture memory and reading the Bible and just all these beautiful acts that our students were pressing into. And spiritual disciplines are kind of like working out. You never want to do it on the front end, but you always feel better on the back end for doing it. Um, but I want to look at the word discipline from kind of a different angle uh, for th this time. I'm going to look at it from the angle of how do we respond when God disciplines us? It's not a very popular topic, and that's the kind of discipline that people are uncomfortable with. We, we don't like the idea that we serve a God who disciplines us, and part of it is because everybody hates discipline. We hate discipline, we hate correction, we hate rebuke. Um, I've seen studies out there that if two people are arguing with one another, and one of them realizes they're wrong, they'll still continue to argue their point because we're stubborn, and, and because we hate being told we're wrong. I saw an article the other week that even ChatGTP hates being corrected. I don't know if you know about ChatGTP or not, but it's, uh, it's like a billion times smarter than Alexa and Google. And um, it, it still had some bugs to work out. And, and there were some things that ChatGTP got wrong, and they corrected them, and he got, ChatGTP got defensive. And y'all, when robots start showing human emotions like defensiveness, you know they're going to kill us all soon. It's like the sci-fi movies, I, Robot, or whatever. Soon they're going to start feeling jealousy and anger, and it's all downhill from there. But even this robot felt defensive because it was being corrected. Nobody likes being corrected. And so we want to wrestle with that today. What does it mean that we serve a God who loves us, but he brings discipline or correction upon us? How do we... How do we fit those two things together? And uh, we've been in the, uh, in the Job, oh, let me say this. As we wrestle with this topic, I, I wanna slow down for a second, and I just wanna take a blanket statement, and this is very important. In the midst uh, of hardship in our lives, I'm in no way communicating that God is punishing us whenever we experience brokenness. That's not, like, whatever horrific things you've experienced or seen happen to other people, we are not communicating that all of that is God's way of teaching us a lesson. That that is not what we're trying to get at. That is theologically incorrect. But that is exactly what the enemy would love for us to feel, right? He would love for us to feel shame and guilt, and like everything's our fault. He would love for us to isolate and not share that with other people. That would be his best plan. That, that is his plan A. And so we need to fight and push back against that. And for some of us in the room, your, nat your natural inclination is, is to blame yourself whenever, whenever things go wrong. You think, well, this is God punishing me, and clearly I screwed up. And, and even as adults, we can be no different 
than the little child who blames himself for their parents fighting, right? We, we can do that exact same thing in these scenarios. So we need to, we need to push back against that. In no way are we saying that, that all hardship, all brokenness in our life is, is any sort of punishment or discipline from God. But with that being said, we do serve a loving father who at times disciplines us. And we've been going through the book of Job, and we've, as we've read the book of Job, we saw how um, he had his health, his wealth, and his family all taken from him. Basically, anything that brought Job joy was taken from him, and he is drowning in a pit of despair. Like he, and we keep thinking that Job hits rock bottom, and then things get worse, and they get worse, and they get worse. And Job's friends come along, and at first they comfort him, and it's great, but then they start to criticize him. They start to cut him down. They start to try to theorize of why Job is in this hard spot, and they bring in all sorts of Eastern mystic beliefs, and, and they just they just kind of go sideways, and it doesn't help Job. It only hurts him, so he's in an even worse spot now. And at the beginning of Job's suffering, he does a great job of honoring God in the midst of that suffering. He's like, God, I, I don't like this situation I'm in, but you're God, I'm not. There's things I don't understand. You're bigger than I am. But then as Job just kept getting pummeled into the ground, um, Job, he, he started to justify himself a little bit, and he started to accuse God of some things that were not true. And this is, this is such a human response. I'm not saying I would do any better. This is just where Job finds himself. And in the midst of those accusations, Job has another friend that speaks up, and we haven't heard from him yet. His name is Elihu. And the reason all these other friends are speaking, they're trying to think, why is this happening? How is this happening? The reason why Elihu didn't speak is because he was younger than the other friends. And he wanted to give respect and reverence to those who were older and let them talk first. But honestly, they're blowing it. They have this really just bad theology. And so God starts to well something up in this younger person named Elihu. And he just feels like he has to speak. He can't hold it back. So he steps into that authority. And by the way, young people in this room... We hope you hear the message that God doesn't want to wait until you're an adult for you to do God-sized things. He wants to use you right here, right now, depending on him and his wisdom. He wants to use you right now. That also goes for anyone in the room who feels like you don't have a leg to stand on, you feel like you don't have authority. God wants to use um, the weak to humble the, or to, yeah, to humble the strong, right? Like that's exactly who God wants to use in these situations. And so he uses a lie and we're going to jump in at Job 33, and honestly, most of Job up to this point, if you've been reading along in our Bible reading plan, Job is a lot of whining and poetry and just bad theology, right? Just these friends coming up with, with things that aren't true. And so Elihu speaks up. He finally speaks up. And here's, um, here's the accusation that he's arguing with Job against. Job made the accusation that God, in the midst of my trial and hardship, in the midst of chaos all around me, I don't feel you, I don't see you working and moving at all, I don't hear your voice. That's his accusation. And again, what a human response. It's really hard to see God moving in the midst of these hard circumstances. But this is what Elihu wants to fight kind of back against. So, Job 33, verse 14, here's what God, or what Elihu says. Um, he says, God does speak, now in one way and now in another, though no one perceives it. Sometimes God speaks in a dream, in a vision of the night. When deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears, 
and terrify them with warnings. Now, I gotta be honest, I didn't expect that part. Like, in a dream, God comes to us and terrifies us with warnings. It says to turn them from wrongdoing and to keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Elihu then goes on to give a couple other examples of ways that God will bring in discipline in the midst of illness or just other hardships where God is going to use that situation to get the attention of the person, to steer them away from something worse. And in, in no way am I saying that rebuke and discipline are the only ways God speaks to us in the midst of hardship. That's not true at all. Uh, but there are times where God will use this in order to get our attention. And C.S. Lewis, one of the great theologians, here's what he said about times of hardship and trial. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I know that that's part of my story, is that I felt God's presence in the midst of hardship. He's gotten my attention. He's kind of woken me up, if you will. I know that's many of your stories as well. And in the case of Job, by the way, I'm not saying that, like, the scriptures don't indicate that Job's health, wealth, family, we don't think all of that was taken away as a way to discipline Job. We think the discipline came in when Job started to accuse God of some things and kind of got off track, that that's where this discipline factor comes in. And in this chapter of Job 33 that we're looking at, the word pit is used five different times. And it's, it's this imagery, well, it's this Hebrew word, shakat, and I'm probably not saying it right, but the Hebrew word, it means pit or pitfall. It can mean your prison or your grave. It can mean hell. And throughout scripture, it's used a bunch. It's mostly used with the word destruction. And so in this chapter, it's basically saying God sees us headed towards destruction, and he's, he's willing to rebuke or correct us in order to keep us from something worse. And so it's the imagery, it's the imagery of there's a trap set for us, right? And, and some of you who know where I'm from, uh, the small town I'm from, you're like, of course Cody would use this as a sermon analogy. Here I am. Um, but, but this is the imagery, it is that God sees us headed towards a pit. He sees us headed towards a trap that looks good to us. It looks appealing to us. It looks really, it makes sense in our own eyes. And he sees us headed towards this, and in order to save us from destruction, he's willing to course correct us. In order to get a better um, imagery of this, we, we have a, um, a, a picture here of a, a bear cub, super cute little bear cub. This is actually a video, in a second we'll hit play, and you'll see this thing walk into a trap, and it just snaps its leg. Let's watch. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. That would be super, that would be super dramatic. We're not going to do that. Are people booing because they wanted to see that? What is, are you booing because I even suggested it? Either way, we'll move on. All right. Here's part of the problem. Part of the problem when it comes to the pit in our life, the sin in our life, the thing that steals life from us. Part of the problem is we think that we can handle our sin. And we think we can handle our temptation. We think we can handle our addiction. We think we're strong enough. I don't really need God. I don't really need other people in the community in my life helping me seek freedom. We think we can do it on our own. And so we start to justify sin. We start to normalize sin. So we start to say things like, well, yeah, I look at pornography, but I've seen the statistics. Everyone does that. It's just, it's just 
just the world we live in, and we start to play with our sin, right? And we, when we start to play with our sin, our sin starts to play with us. When we start to feed our addiction, our addiction starts to feed on us. And then we start to justify things, right? We, we say, sure, I'm married, but I'm just looking at other women. I'm not, I'm not acting out on anything. I'm just, I'm just browsing the menu, as they like to say, right? We, we justify things like that. And before you know it, sin will take you places that you never wanted to go, that you never dreamed of going. And so before you know it, you're on Facebook and you're like, you know what? I used to really connect with my old boyfriend or girlfriend from high school. I wonder how they're doing now. What if I just message them on Facebook and I see how their marriage is going? I wonder if their marriage is having some of the struggles that mine's had, right? We start to just slowly creep more towards our destruction. And it leads to, to hurt in our life. It leads to hurt in other people's lives. It, it leads to nothing good. And so God in his mercy starts to discipline and correct us in order to save us from something worse. Now, I, I was debating, uh, just kind of keeping this up here the whole time. Um, would that kind of make anyone nervous if I didn't, you know, snap the trap? I'll, I'll go for it here. Um, so, so, yeah. All right. In doing so, I've even distracted myself. Let's see here. All right. So God, in moments, he sees us going sideways. He sees us leaving him and his ways and going towards destruction. And so like a good shepherd, like a good father, he pulls us back towards himself. And this is what we see in Hebrews chapter 12 as it talks about discipline. It says this. It says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. And so it's communicating here that if God loves you, then of course he will discipline you as part of his love for you. So the question that we need to wrestle with today is in moments where we feel Discipline, and we will be disciplined. In those moments, how do we respond? How do we still love God in those hard seasons? Because I'm guessing, parents in the room, I'm guessing that when you discipline your child, I'm guessing they don't look up at you and go, Mom, Dad, I just feel so loved by, by you disciplining me. And I just know you're shepherding my little heart and drawing me towards Jesus by you. Thank you so much for your, right? Your kids don't do that. We don't like, so how do we respond as children of God to these moments of discipline? Well, we see it laid out for us in uh, verse 27 and 28 of Job 33. Again, Elihu, he's giving all these examples of how God will swoop in and he will save us from the pit. He will save us from destruction. And he uses an example of, of two individuals. One has wronged the other one. And he's going to go to that person and make things right. Let's read it uh, in verse 27. It says, they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. So this is a beautiful, beautiful passage of reconciliation. And I'm sure there's a ton of application. There's two points I want to talk about. One is repentance, and the other one is worship. I'll talk about repentance first. This is our second modern-day cuss word of the day. Uh, we, we don't like the idea. Maybe we're okay with the idea of needing to repent and apologize to one another, but our society is very uncomfortable with the, with the idea that we need to repent to God. 
God. It implies that we have sin. It implies that we're broken. And it implies that we owe God something, and our society isn't about that life. But in the scriptures, this idea, this theme of repentance is everywhere. And you could never, ever, ever get alone with your Bible, just you and God, and read the scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. You could never come to the conclusion that repentance wasn't pivotal to the Christian faith, that it wasn't this just super important part of the Christian faith. And in fact, Jesus, his very first message that he portrayed to the masses was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what repentance is. Repentance it is as we walk towards what we think is right, what we think is good, what we think will bring pleasure and comfort, repenting is walking away from that thing and walking towards God and his will and his way. And repentance is the declaration of the world doesn't revolve around me, and sure, I have feelings and passions and desires, and I have things that I think are right, but I'm going to lay those down. I'm going to submit those things to God's will and God's way. I'm going to do, I'm going to align myself with him. That's what repentance is. That's what we're called to. And we have big moments of repentance in our life. Like, when we give our life to Jesus, that's a moment of repentance. That's a declaration that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I'm not a good king of my own life, and I need to take myself off the throne and give Jesus his rightful throne in my life. I repent. That, that's basically saying, uncle, like, I, I don't want to do it. I need you to rule and reign on my behalf. Another big moment of repentance in our life is baptism. And like Alicia talked about, we have baptisms next weekend. Baptism is the declaration that I was once dirty, sinful, broken. And when we're dumped in that water, it's the declaration that I've been washed clean and made new. Like I have a new slate, a new life. My old ways are dead. And when we're pulled out of the water, it symbolizes that we will one day too resurrect just like Jesus. It's this beautiful repentance that we're going to get to share in next weekend. And if you're in this room and you're a believer but you haven't been baptized, we, we want to invite you to that. Not only will it deepen your faith with God, not only will it declare to everyone else in the room your story and, and what you stand on, but it's also a commandment in Scripture. Like Jesus kind of took all the mystery out of baptism. He says repent and be baptized. He doesn't say when you feel like it or if you feel like it. He says we just do it. That's part of being a child of God is we do what he says. So we want to invite you in towards that, whether you're an adult, whether you're a kid. We just we want to invite you into that. And then there are smaller moments of baptism, or smaller moments of repentance, sorry. Um, there are smaller moments of repentance in our life that are hopefully rhythms of our life, daily, weekly, monthly, where we're often repenting to one another and we're repenting to God. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about what that looks like in my life. Um, I have an accountability partner, and we do a 15-minute phone call every week. And on that phone call, we say, how's your week been, and what do you need prayer for? And since we're guys, we can actually get that done in 15 minutes. And, uh, <laughs> sorry, ladies. Um, not that there's anything wrong with digging in deeper to your lives. If, you, if you're about deeper relationships, that's not a bad thing. It's just comical. Um, so, 15 minutes. And uh, in that 15 minutes, a lot of like, what do I need prayer for? I talk about things that are tempting me, things that are, are sin in my life. And earlier, when I used this as an example, you know, I used the example of sexual sin. And, and I didn't do that to elevate that sin above any other sin or anything like that. I, I 
did that because there's a lot of things in my life that can take me sideways. You know, I, I, I have temptation towards pride and, and wanting to look impressive, and I have temptation towards uh, the love of money and, and wanting comfort and security. But sexual sin is something that can take me sideways so fast. And it's something that if I'm not dragging that into the light, like if I'm not actively repenting and, and sharing in that repentance with others, then it is going to take me places that I never wanted to go. And I know that about myself. And, and in fact, God has wired all of us to fight sin and temptation together. He never wired you and me to do it on our own as being God. No, that's great. That's part of it. But he's always wired us to do this confession and repentance in communion. And uh, lost my spot again, y'all. So sorry. Yeah, we're called to drag our sin into the light. And what would it look like if we as a community, if, if our sin didn't intimidate us and it didn't shake us when we drag stuff into the light, but instead, what if we as a community, uh, we weren't intimidated by it, but instead we just brought that person before Jesus. And we spoke words of life over them, saying, in Christ you are forgiven, in Christ we're made new. What if we spent time telling each other who we are in Jesus? I think this would attract a lot of hurting people to be a part of our congregation. And what if when we heard uh, sermons on repentance and confession, what if our immediate thought wasn't, well, my spouse needs to do that? Or, or I know some people that really need to repent. These people, no, but what if instead we looked at the log in our own eye and we thought, God, what are ways that I'm setting up separation between you and me? Because I don't want there to be anything that separates me from you. I want to be so close to you. I want to be so aligned with your will and your way that I need to lay down some of these things that are, again, things that I, I'm about, things that I feel are right, things that I feel are good. What if I'm willing to lay those down in order to draw closer to our Savior? So that's repentance. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about just briefly is worship. And if you'll throw those verses back up there, 27 and 28, again, we see just a beautiful declaration here. I've sinned, I've perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. And that I did not get what I deserved is basically the message of Christianity. It's that we deserve sin, we deserve hell, we deserve death because of our rebellion against God, but God did not give you and me what we deserved. Instead, he sent Jesus who drank the full wrath of God. He, he took on our sin and our punishment and our shame. He was hung up naked on a cross. He took all of it on our behalf. And the great exchange took place, as it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, that Jesus became sin. He embodied sin. And then he allowed you and I to be the righteousness of God. And so now when God looks upon you and I who are in Christ, he sees not our sin, not our brokenness, but he, instead he sees righteous, pure, blameless, spotless, Holy before him. That's what he sees when he looks at you and I, because this great exchange has taken place. And that should draw us to a place of worship. That should draw us to a place of reverence, because he didn't need to do that. And, and because he was unfair, because he did not give us what we deserved, we're going to magnify his name. And so we want to we practice those two things. Rusty, would you come up and lead us? Don't we love Cody? Man. Traps among us. I want to emphasize um, here in these last minutes those two words he said, what he called Christian curse words. Well, at least.
is one of them, repentance and worship. That's where we're going to end here for just a, just a moment. But in doing so, I want to uh, maybe highlight it in a way uh, that I really want, I want us to amplify a little bit. How many have, have, have followed what God's been doing in Asbury, this college? God on. If you haven't, I'm going to give you a thumbnail. Jesus himself has uh, shown up when a bunch of young people, kids, um, got serious. There was a, um, got serious with him. Was it any more serious than they'd been in every other time? This school has chapel three times a week. Wednesday, they had a, a local pastor come in, young guy, and he was given his all right there and talking about the love of God landed the ship and you know pretty much ready to hey if anybody wants to hang around and pray a little bit more I'll be around um, and off he goes down the stairs I, I read this a little bit later he, he's texting his wife and he says another whiff I'll be home soon and then as he's walking down the back he, he uh, talks to his other friend he says well uh, that was a stinker Yet, a handful of kids, young people from the college, stuck around. I don't know exactly what happened there, but God must have sparked one of them. And they got to talking, and they got to sharing with one another. You know, the last number of years have been really hard on all of us, but particularly these kids. I'm trying to figure out. They are at odds in many ways. And I'm sure some of those things were going on. They began to in community repent, confess. And you know, in a short order, that group of 8 to 10 to 12 grew. A whole bunch more came back from lunch. And by the end of the day, the entire Hughes Auditorium, 1,400 seats, was full. And people were worshiping God. Excitement built and jumped the street. There's only one street in Wilmore, Kentucky, if you've ever been there. <laughs> College on one side, a seminary. Seminary students, they started pouring across. And the little town of Wilmore, sleepy little town, got awoke. Waked up to what God might be doing and started driving lines of them into this chapel. And they had reason to be excited. You know why? Because the Lord has visited this campus in remarkable ways over the years. He's come in eight different times over their history profound way when the Spirit of God came. One of the times, and, and it's happened so often, let me say it this way, is that those who are studying revival, those who are studying the awakenings of God in a nation, they, they kind of look at Asbury and say, you know, it's been very strange. It, it seems that when things start to happen in Asbury, it either coincides or it just preempts what God's doing in a region, in a nation. 1905 was one time when the Spirit of God came, and they responded just like these kids are doing now. And out of 1905, and the year later, a revival, big revival, broke out in California. It's called the Azusa Street Revival, and it changed the expression of Christianity in a generation of how they embraced things, how they reached for. 1950, same thing, 1950. Another explosion of life happened in the Asbury campus on that, in that very same chapel. 
years just right after that, something that blew up in our nation called the, the Healing Evangelist Revival. That's how it's been termed. Ran for like seven or eight years. That's when these giant tents were all over the nation. Amazing miracles were happening. Changed the expression of Christianity in various places in the church. 1970 was the last time that people remember a big boom like this. And I'm very familiar with that because my aunt and uncle went to Asbury at those times, those days. I was six or seven when it happened. And for a, a full week, night and day, people sleeping in the auditorium never wanted to leave. Uh, God was visiting repentance with worship, with confession and testimony of what had been changing in their lives. They shut it down after a week because after that, administration and say, hey, we got to take this out. So they sent people all over the country. My aunt and uncle were one of the teams that ran to uh, San Diego, California, just sharing their testimony. I just learned in my own small group that uh, one of our members' family was greatly impacted by some of those students who came to Finley, Ohio, and talked about the, the life-changing mercy of Jesus in their church and touched their father and touched their life has been changed because of it. I want to amplify this moment here because, you know, we live in this in these cycles and news and fog where, boom, it just changes the next minute and then we're on, we're on to the next thing. But I want to say, I want to just bring some attention to what God is doing, has been doing, because we're in an inflection point, a change right now of what God is pulling for. I was so stunned by this and, and touched by it. I wanted to go see it. When I really did see. David beat me. Oh, no, he's better. He had a day off different than me. Went down there, enjoyed it very much so. I saw on a very rainy, cold day thousands of people surrounding a campus with their umbrellas. Everybody smiling. Tried to cut in the line. They were very helpful. Oh, sure. Stand right here. Something different in the lines there. There were so many people that I could not get in, so I was in an overflow. And in the overflow, you could still Voices would sing over top of the instruments, simple worship. That's when it really touched me. Wow, God, you're doing something. You're doing something here. I came back that day um, fully amazed because the night before I had seen on national television, maybe you all did too, some of the people interviewing the, the student body president. What's going on in your campus? It says, we can't really, we don't know what to call it, a revival or an outpouring or whatever. All I know is that Jesus is visiting us in a remarkable way on the chapel on the corner of campus. That so touched this news broadcast that they had planned that they're going to send a whole crew down in a few days. They're going to set it all up on, on, on one of the news stations. And we can't get this out of our mind. So they made plans. And on the day, just prior to their going, they get a call from the student from the president of the college and uh, says something. I, I, I just wanted to put my glasses out and read it to you, see if it touches you in, in amazement like it touched me. Hey, it's, uh, it's really nothing personal, says the president, but we ask you don't come. Don't, don't come. He says, uh, the ongoing service here at Asbury is purely a spiritual thing, nothing to do with politics. Nothing to do with business. 
Nobody's making any money from this. Nor anybody planning to run for office. <laughs> it's mostly just young people worshiping God, repenting, finding meaning and answers in Him, Jesus, in a country that's increasingly not able to offer them much of anything. It's not really a place for TV cameras, and the man says we, they understood that. And in fact, we deeply respected that, said Ms. Anansi. Then he went on to say this, and this is what stunned me. When you work in television as long as we have, you run, you run into people who always are looking for publicity. You almost never, almost never meet anybody who doesn't want any publicity. And when you do, they either are doing something very wrong, or in the rarest of all occasions, they're doing something right. Something so beautiful, something so true that media coverage cannot enhance it. It can only detract from it. We think that's what's happening at Asbury University. God bless them for turning us down. I was like stunned. Just to look at the guy's face, I was like, unbelievable. Shortly thereafter, I find on my Facebook feed another uh, little trending item about the movie Jesus Revolution. Anybody seen it yet? Oh, okay, good. That's the takeaway. You're going to have to go see that. <laughs> I'm watching this news clip of some morning show where <clears throat> a guy named
more special than any other thing, except there are sometimes when you get perspective and you step back and you're looking at Broadway, it's like, God, you've done this for a hundred years. And it seems to be coinciding with what you're doing in a broader way. But we get so localized on this little focus here, we can't see beyond. I'm going to tell you there's dots that we need to connect some lines to. And that builds an expectation and anticipation. And, oh, there's too much more that I'd love to talk to you about on those things. However, I love um, the illustration that Alicia said a little bit. It says, I just love the spring when you see the buds happening. I'm not saying that everything that happened at um, Asbury or has been at this transition moment is the big, it's going to be the big one. But we know it's spring start to come out. When the sun gets a little bit longer, when the coldness of the night gets warmed up by the middle of the afternoon, we know we're coming into the spring. I'm saying this is a harbinger. This is a sign. There have been hundreds, thousands praying in this nation for awaken us, Lord. And in the past, Asbury has been kind of the ones that you kind of look at and go, hmm, that's interesting. And it's touched national. It's touched what I think, even if we're not, I can't see the downside to not believing and living like we are. Can you? Right? I think we ought to live there. C.S. Lewis, I'm closing with this, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. He loves this phrase, he says, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move, friends. Here's the truth. I once, a man once told me, he says, Rusty, he says, you cannot participate in what you cannot see. And I thought, that's a profound statement. I want to, this is a, this, I'm, a wit, I'm a witness, I'm with everyone else. Hey, something is going on right now. Those students is responding from a place of repentance and a place of worship. Let's have the band come back out now. From a place of repentance planning for the uh, National Collegiate Day of Prayer was planned a year in advance. Where do you think they planned to have that? At Asbury University. Long before they this happened and they, boom, they exploded. I watched it online. Three and a half, three and a half, three and a half million students were watching it. Asking for God to call out for their nation, for their campuses. The, the, this movie comes out the very next day. Do you think maybe God has kind of lined some things up? Again, I'll say, even if he hasn't, what's the downside to believing and living like he hasn't? Let's do it. I'm going to invite you to stand.
does, he does it his way. Take us into your hands.